think after a song like that, you need a quiet moment. Father, again, let us not transition too quickly away from the depth of that message. Jesus alone. You can have all there is in the world. But we want Jesus. We would see Jesus. We would have Jesus. He or she that has Jesus has life. And he or she who has not Jesus has not life. And so our Father, we offer to you our hearts and our desire that our lives would be Jesus. That for us to live would be Jesus. So that to die would be gain. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. There are some people who sing, in the morning when I rise, give me money. And when I am alone, and when I am alone, and when I am alone, give me money. And when I come to die, and when I come to die, then what? Would you turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of James, James chapter 5. We're going to look at a section of scripture this morning that talks about rich people. In fact, as I have studied this text, I believe that it is accurate to say you cannot be these people and be a Christian too. In fact, James says, now listen, or listen up, you rich people. I think that you're going to find as we look into this this morning that the North American dream and Jesus' kingdom vision are completely incompatible. A a cursory sweep of the kingdom vision of Christ that that is laid out for us in uh, Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7 really highlights the fact that there is no possible way that the kingdom vision of Christ and the North American dream are compatible. He talks about blessing in terms like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Uh, Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. He says, if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. 
Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Do not worry about what you shall eat or what you shall drink or what you shall wear. For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. And on he teaches. Let me ask you a couple of questions this morning. Have your possessions accumulated over the years and are they somehow increasingly dulling your spiritual sensitivities to God's voice? Are you developing tunnel vision? Hard of hearing? Is your heart getting callous toward the Lord? Is keeping your conscience and your things together increasingly requiring you to be creative with scripture? The pursuit of wealth that disregards God and his purposes has no place in the life of the Christian, James teaches. And part of God's purpose, part of God's purposes are that he cares for people. And, and I want to say to you that in this text, James 5, verses 1 to 6, which we'll deal with this morning, James rips into the rich in a way that is not paralleled anywhere else in the scriptures. Including, I think, the hard teachings of the Old Testament prophets. This is perhaps the strongest confrontation with, with wealth that you'll find in Scripture. And um, I wonder, actually, if James, who grew up in the house of Joseph, with his half-brother Jesus found that the distinction between wealth and poverty was very acutely felt by their family. You know, when we read the Gospels, we realize that, for the most part, after the early stages of Christ's life description, we don't hear about Joseph, his father, anymore. And some speculate that perhaps Joseph died while the family were yet fairly young. I wonder, in particular, in that era when there was no real social safety net, I wonder if James grew up in a house that was very poor. And I wonder, you know, Jesus said things like, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I wonder if, if this reached deep into James' heart, the great chasm between the wealthy and the poor. Now, we, all, we also know that James is, of course, drawing his teachings from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19 in particular is highly um, highlighted in, the, in this particular text. We also know that he's drawing his teachings from the teachings of Christ. We know that the Holy Spirit guided him and led him to write these things. We also, I also want to suggest or submit to you that this text, chapter 5, verse 1 to 6, is not written to Christians. I'm pretty convinced of that because 
he simply says, now listen, you rich people. He doesn't say brothers. He, he, doesn't, even, he doesn't talk to them about redemption or a recourse. He just, he just talks about the harsh reality of wealth and what it can do to a person. And what it can do is collateral damage to people around. And he tells them to weep and to wail because of the misery that is coming upon them. And so you say this morning, so why didn't we just skip this then? Because for the most part, the people, most of the people who are in this room are, are people who follow passionately after Christ. So if this is not written to Christians, what application does it have to us? Well, I thought it wouldn't be a good idea to necessarily just skip over something without studying it. And as I studied it, I realized, wait a second, there's a, there's a whole lot here that may, in fact, reach its tentacles into the life of a Christian. There's a whole lot in here that might have some sort of ouch factor. If we're willing to let God speak to our own hearts and our own situation and our own life. And so I, I would... I would tell you that this morning, what we're going to attempt to do is, is to show you how to avoid the evils and miseries of money. So that at the end of it all, it won't be said of you, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. So this is a call for avoidance, but an important one, I'm, I'm convinced. Now, now, last week, some of you weren't here, but those of you who were here, you remember we talked about the text just before, verses 13 through 17, and, and that, was, that was about money and commerce as well. And, and in that text, in fact, remember we, we found out that, that the individual says, tomorrow I'm going to go make money. I'll, I'll make money. And, and, and by how it was stated, there was a sense of independence of God, an oblivious sense of God. Tomorrow I'm going to this city or that city. I'm going to spend a year and I'm going to make a whole pile of money. And there was no thought of God. And so this statement was made. I'll make money independent of God. And we talked about how risky that was, how dangerous that was, and how displeasing that was to God. Now maybe some of you aren't aware that, that a typical day 3,000 years ago in the typical life of a man of God was very different than our lives in a lot of ways. In fact, if a, a typical man were, were on his way to the fields to work and he were to meet a Midianite merchant on the way who offered him a gift of a polyester cotton blend shirt, he would have to reject it. In, in fact, in, in terms of going to that field to plant, if it was one field, he could only plant one kind of seed in that one field. When we're talking about animal husbandry, he couldn't mate different kinds of animals together. If you're talking about harvest time, the teachings of the scriptures to the man of God 3,000 years ago was that he couldn't reap to the very fringes of his field. He couldn't double sweep his vineyards. He couldn't gather up fallen grapes. And by the way, he could only take fruit from the fifth year of harvest because he was forbidden to take the first and the second and the third year. And the fourth year of fruit belonged to God. He could take the fifth year. In terms of supper time, and you can look this up in Leviticus 14 if you're fascinated. In terms of supper time, when it came to red meat, he could only eat something that had a full split hoof. And he couldn't eat, by the way, anything that, uh, 
chewed, uh, that didn't chew the cud. So uh, couldn't eat pigs and couldn't eat rabbits. Uh, I'm okay with that. In terms of seafood, he could only eat things with scales or fins. Calvin, you like this. No clams, no oysters, no crabs, no lobsters, no catfish, no bottom feeders in their diet. In terms of eating fowl, they couldn't eat bird or meat-eating birds. And when it came time for a crunchy dessert, a grasshopper was okay, but a beetle, no way. Yum, yum. And if during the day a dead lizard perchance fell on the man's shirt, or a chameleon, or a rat for that matter, they had to spend the rest of the day in water because they were unclean. And why, why all of this? Because every waking hour of the man or woman of God in that context was a living object lesson of God. That God is in heaven, holy, preeminent, sovereign over their days and over their lives. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit living in us now. We have that consciousness of, of God. But they had this sense, acute sense of clean and unclean and, and, and good and evil and right and wrong. That is, by the way, to be the sensitivities of the modern man or woman of Jesus Christ who has the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. Our lives are constantly be a continual uh, acknowledgement of the presence of Christ in everything we do. We're thinking about God and whether this is right or whether this is wrong. So they set up systems so that the Lord would be at the front of the line. That's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you as well. And so that's the situation of the people who were being presumptuous on God, and why James writes of that earlier in, at the end of chapter 4, writes about how horrible this presumption is, I'll make money independent of God. He's, he's pointing out, you, you would never have lived like that. Don't start living like that now because you have the Holy Spirit. By the way, we can't eat rabbits now. We can eat lobsters and clams and oysters. I don't know who would want to, but you can. But in this section that we're going to move on to, James takes it down a notch. These people are not just oblivious to God, but arrogantly contrary to God. So let's look at the text. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, 
The wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Nowhere else concentrated in this way is God speaking so forcefully about the dangers of wealth, the misuse and the abuse of wealth. These individuals, these rich people, have a constant drive to be rich. They're unbelievers, James says, and don't copy them. I wonder as he looked around in his congregation if he were drawing some concern It's a very unwise strategy, James says, particularly in the last days. As God is winding up the present world system, its values, its order, the negative influence of wealth itself. James is saying, if you don't deal with the envy that is so deeply lodged in your heart, you will fully embrace friendship with the world as well. And you'll end up like this. Is that what you want to look like? He says, serious misery is coming, verse 1. Serious misery is coming. Well, I think the only way we can effectively handle this in terms of application for ourselves is to to look at it and say, am I I potentially in, in trouble here? Is there anything here that's maybe describing something in my life? Have I allowed some of this to taint the way I live and the way I think? And so I want to give you four thoughts this morning as we, as we um, wrap this up. Is, is are, are, you might be in serious trouble when, first of all, the amount wasting away in your life idle is more than you are presently using if you are addicted to accumulation, what you have here in the first two verses, or verse two and three, is the sorry picture of accumulated wealth. They have so much, it's wasting away. By the way, this clothes with the moth-eaten, moth-rotted away and all of that, that's not some sort of description of, hey, they've been wearing the same clothes day in and day out, and they're so badly beaten up that they're moth-eaten and all of that. That's, that's not what James is talking about. James is talking about the piles and piles of clothing and the piles and piles of collectibles and the piles and piles of this in, in the safety deposit box that are just sitting around, wasting away, idle, rotting away. You have so much that the stuff you have is going to waste. That's what he's talking about. Seen that show on TV, Hoarding? Anybody seen that show? Well, that's sort of what we're talking about here, only this is not really the pathological condition. Although, you know, as I think about it, maybe it is a pathological condition. It certainly is a theologically pathological condition. He talks here about um, precious metals, gold and silver. And, uh, of course, um, these precious metals are not helping their owners to become precious or to endure. In fact, you know, we, we understand the, that purchase of, of gold and the hedge against inflation, right? That's what we're taught. 
for all I know, Dave Ramsey's going to teach us that gold's a hedge against inflation. Yeah, it's a hedge against inflation in the, if the value system uh, for eternity is the present value system. But, the, but, but James is writing here, no, it's all going to change in, these, la- in the, these last days are a setup for what's going to come in the future of, of eternity. And, and, and gold is not going to be a hedge against inflation in eternity. In fact, if you read your Bibles, gold is going to be used for asphalt. It's not going to be all that important to anybody in eternity. It, it has a different value system. The, it, it's no longer precious. And, and by the way, the picture here is really kind of scary. It eats at your flesh. This, the, the corrosion of these precious metals on your body, they're turning into like a poison, acidic corrosion of your heart. Your life. The owner not only loses his investment, ultimately, but loses his life. You know the statement, he who has the most toys, winning. Well, in this case, James is writing, it's evidence to declare losing. That's what he's saying here. You hoarded up wealth in the last days. It's going to eat your flesh like fire. Uh, you know, when you think of gold, I don't think of corrosion. I never put those two things together, do you? In fact, that's why we buy precious metals. They're precious because they don't corrode. It, it's, that's what makes gold so special. It doesn't tarnish. It doesn't corrode. And James says, well, I've got news for you. Yeah, that's the science of the present situation. But God is not going to let gold become more important to people than himself. God will just corrode the gold. God will either make your wealth a treasure or treacherous. Because he corrodes it. The only thing that's not perishable is the wealth of your soul. See, this is talking about accumulation, about possession. It's not talking about the acquisition of wealth. The acquisition of wealth is for the benefit of blessing people and the glory of God. James is not here talking about it is is sinful to acquire wealth. He's saying it's sinful to stockpile wealth. It's sinful to allow it to rot away, to be useless, to be idle. In the scriptures, Jesus teaches about wealth is, is is for the purpose of purchasing friends for heaven. Luke chapter 16 verse 9. The Apostle Paul says that that wealth is necessary so that you can help out the have-nots in Ephesians 4, verse 28. Uh, Paul also writes to the Corinthian church and says that that wealth that is gifted uh, brings praise to God. And John wrote that, that, that wealth is for the purpose of presenting opportunities for the gospel in 3 John 6 to 8. But these people... These rich people have just hoarded it away, stocked it away, made it, left it idle so that it's wasting away, not being used for the glory of God. Well, James goes on here to um, import into the New Testament another Old Testament teaching when he says, look, verse 4. The wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the the ears of the Lord Almighty. 
The sin of ripping people off. In fact, if you were to look in Malachi chapter 3, verse 5, you would notice that, that, this, that ripping people off is included in a list of other horrific sins like sorcery, adultery, and perjury. You know, they go, oh, you know, rip a couple of people off, what's the big deal? To God, he places it in a list of deplorable sins. And, and I think the, the picture here is where where in investors' strategies find a way to delay disbursements to benefit themselves. Maybe if they can just hold on to their money for another 30 days before they necessarily give it to their laborers, they'll benefit themselves, and what's the big deal? The big deal is that the laborers are depending on daily bread if they don't get paid today, they're in desperate straits. And, 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 and besides, James says, I'm not just making up a new ethic. You've been taught this all along. In Deuteronomy 24, verse 14 and 15, do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy, whether he's a brother Israelite or an alien living in one of your towns. Pay him his wages each day before sunset because he is poor and is counting on it. Otherwise, he may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. You see, the, the rich man here is, is always looking for a technical loophole or some slick investment strategy to avoid financial responsibility. That's what James is up in arms about here. He's, this person is withholding wages because he has such a stockpile of resources that, 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 that he can continue to utilize his investments and he's not having a heart or not considering the fact that, that the, person who, the poor person who labors for him faithfully day by day lives on handouts from him, hand to mouth. He needs his wages today. He doesn't have a buffer. Sometimes, you know, we forget we forget that there are people around us who, they don't have a buffer. They, they don't have anything to draw on that will hold them over for a couple of months. And so these withheld wages are screaming out, it says in the text, to the Lord. And the picture here is the same as when the blood of Abel was screaming out to the Lord in Genesis for justice. It cries out against you, James says. The grievance has gone past the lead hand to the courtroom of heaven. God's heard about this. And not only has this grievance gone to God about wages, but the laborers themselves have cried out, it says here, to the Lord, actually, Seboeth. NIV translated this incorrectly. The Lord Almighty is a, a great characteristic and description of God, but it doesn't happen to be this one. It's the Lord of hosts. The Lord of armies. The Lord Seboeth. It's, it's a battle symbol. It, it's God is arrayed up for battle against the person who would rip off his worker.
These cries have come up to the armies of heaven. I think, you know, as I, as I speak to myself and to us here this morning, I speak to Christian businessmen who might be here. We need to think differently, I think, about fair wages and delivery of those wages in terms of scriptural ethic. Great wealth brings great responsibility for and to the people around you. That's why the union movement gained momentum. Several, many decades ago, when my grandfather was misused and mistreated and abused by the wealthy industrial owners, or people who are always trying to get something for nothing. Don't you realize that somebody pays? Lift up the laborers' lives. Lift up the workmen's lives. Otherwise, their cries go out to the Lord. Do you know, um, do you know what the sin of Sodom was? And many of you here will say, well, of course we know it was homosexuality. Well, it's true that they were practicers of homosexuality, but that's not what the Lord identified as the primary issue that really enraged him. In fact, um, in Ezekiel chapter 16, this is what the prophet said. Verse 49, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. The thing that God highlighted was their lack of concern for those who had needs around them while they gathered up opulence and luxury. And James writes here, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. I, I might be in danger of, of this being the case of my life when wealth has me. When I'm looting creation for nothing more than opulent self-pleasure, coupled with an indifference to the needs and the suffering around me. This idea of living large, of living luxuriously, wantonly, wasteful, squanderous, selfish. That's what James is talking about here. That was the sin of Sodom. That is why God rained down fire and brimstone from heaven upon Sodom and Gomorrah. They're detestable things. But primarily he identified the fact that they had closed hearts toward the plight of the people around them. Now, in attempting to make this application for a modern audience, there are some disconnects from the culture here and the culture then. For instance, this was an a, a agricultural, uh, for the most part, an agrarian culture that was um, managed by a feudal system. And that feudal system was handled and managed by uh, a few landowners. In fact, um, if, you, if you read in the scriptures or you, you study the, the history of the time, you'll find out that there were about six landowners who, who controlled 50% of the Roman state of Africa. 
And, and 7% of the population owned 40% of all of Italy during the time of Trajan, which would be 98 AD to about 117 AD, which is a little bit later than the time of James, but similarly, the state was, was similar. And so you had these, these uh, uh, gigantic land holdings and, and James writes, writes here and says, you, you've been living off the land. You, you've, been, you've been looting the land. You've, you've lived off the earth. And, and it's not even yours. Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Psalm 24.1. You, you've, been, you've been feathering your nest. You've been You've been squandering and stockpiling and living in luxurious opulence while people around you are starving. The people who've made you that money by working your fields are starving and dying. This is what he's talking about. And for the most part, you've been living there. You have been living for a long time because it's been handed down to you. You didn't even work for this. And then he paints this very ugly picture. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Like stuffed, overfed Swiss chalet chickens. You have set yourself up on the sight lines of God as an obvious target to go on his banquet plate when he exhibits his banquet of wrath towards cold and callous and wealth and people who are facing death row crimes. Instead of filling yourself with the Holy Spirit and fattening yourself with God. So, beloved, be careful. Be careful not to be fattening your body of wealth and become an obvious target for slaughter in the last judgment. Rather, fatten your soul to be a target of salvation. Christians are called to be stewards of wealth and never self-indulgent slobs, not ever. So go dig a well somewhere. Go use your, your money to your access to microfinance, a third world entrepreneur. Put God's stuff to work in God's things. Invest in people who will use the resources to bear much fruit for the kingdom of God. This is the teaching for Christians. This is the counter. And then one final thing that I want to share with you from James. You've condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. I don't know if, if some of you joined with me, but I, I forget how many months ago it was. And I was shocked by the, um, the circumstances. In fact, I was somewhat enraged by the circumstances when Obamacare was introduced. Now, I, I don't please... Don't send me stuff about Obama or anything like this. That's not the issue. Here's the issue. The issue was 
social care for the nation. Social medical care. And did you happen to notice the venom, the anger, the objections to taking care of one another? Now, I know that this stuff was, was disguised in statements like, oh, tucked in there is abortion stuff and all that, please. America has abortion stuff already. But south of the border, there was nothing but venom toward any social system like Canada has or England has and, and, and mischaracterizing our, our care and, and our medical profession and, and all, all, that, all of that. What really bothered me most was most of the venom came from the evangelical community of America. The same people who justified slavery scripturally. Murdering innocent people. When you put the poor in life-threatening circumstances so you can enjoy your own luxuries, you are murdering and condemning innocent people. It was all about, I don't want to pay extra taxes. I don't believe that's Jesus' position at all. You know, the, a, a, an interpreter of Scripture reminded me that in 1 Corinthians 1, 28 to 29, God selects the poor and converts them to serve as a sign of his glory. You read it for yourself. Nullifying what the world has taken for glory and wealth. It's the working poor who have made the rich rich. And so we need to, I think, think very carefully in our lives about these things. When God uses language like murder innocent people, it places the perpetrators in a class of those genocidal maniacs who are sentenced to hell because of their crimes against humanity. And when anybody puts themselves in verse 6 as guilty of verse 6, they also put themselves in the same category and class as those genocidal maniacs like Adolf Hitler. And God is outraged. God is always outraged at the dehumanizing of image bearers of the Lord himself. And so I would say that to avoid crimes against humanity and being assembled among others guilty of genocide, we better take personal responsibility for elevating the situation of the working poor, especially those who serve us. And so... For whatever it's worth, and I'm not a socialist, philosophically, I applaud the social care attitude of Canada. And I think we ought to think about things like benefiting from the sweatshop labor costs in third world countries. I think we ought to 
think a little bit more about considerations like the taking of jobs away from workers through our addiction to profit and automation. I think we should not necessarily always look for the best deal because someone has to pay. Maybe by way of wages. I think we shouldn't always give our business to the corporate mega profiteers who run small businesses out of business so that we can get a better price and they can pay lower wages. Is the best deal all we should ever consider? I think the gospel is more robust and bigger than that. And I think that Jesus has a more significant concern about these things than we maybe have thought. Idolatry, by the way, always leads to mercilessness, and it will always lead to murder, which will result in judgment without mercy. You see, um, what James was concerned is that his people might sin by not doing what they knew was right. So let me close by saying this to you. This is not a call to poverty, but rather a challenge to ensure your money is a ministry, that your money's on a mission. Wealth is not to make us luxuriously comfortable, but rather to make God glorious. So let me just say this. I think this is a warning for all of us. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you individually in what this is all about. Don't envy the wealthy. It's tough to be rich. And wrongs will be avenged. Justice will come to pass. Unfairness will be made, will be corrected. As a diagnostic warning, I have to ask myself, is there stuff here that, that perhaps... I'm demonstrating, it's starting to show in my life. And that everyone, I think, is accountable for everything they do. So it's time for all of us to make sure that we're very proactive about what we do with our access. Because God's going to hold us responsible for it. Our Father, as we shut down this section this morning, at least from the formal proclamation perspective, I pray that the Holy Spirit will keep it very much at work in our hearts and our minds and our thinking as we reflect upon the kind of people Jesus wants us to be. And, and Lord, I pray that we will be people who truly reflect the heart of the Lord, the one who is the maker of heaven and earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it And that, Father, we are stewards, we are merely stewards who have been entrusted in this side of the the globe with an inordinate amount of blessing. And I pray, Father, that you will help us to understand how we best can be a blessing to the people of the world, how we can use our resources, not stockpiling, not luxuriously, wantonly squandering things Lord, but rather, how can we release what you have granted to us to go to work in the name of Jesus? For this brings you honor and glory. 
Father, I pray that we will think deeply about these things and not just cast it aside because it's uncomfortable. Because one day you will ask us about these things. So Lord, uh, it's time now. If we need to weep and wail, it better be now, not then. And um, help us to get it right with you. So Lord, uh, we, we've sung songs this morning like I Surrender All and, and, and it, it's all about you and, and, and give me Jesus and all of that, Lord. We need to, to make our singing uh, our living. And so, Lord, there's nothing like a text like this to force the issue in our lives. And so I just pray that, that we won't resist the promptings of the Holy Spirit, but that, Lord, we will respond to you and take a few moments now and before we leave and just give over inventory to you of our hearts and our lives and our possessions and, and give, them all over, give them over to you all over again. Is they're yours. And Lord, if there's any corrections that we can make, that you prompt us by your Holy Spirit, then um, may we quickly do them. It's a sin to know what is right to do and not to do it. So let's do what we know is right, Lord. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.